Welcome to the Localization Fireside Chat. I'm Robin Ayoub, your host. Join me for captivating conversations with industry leaders exploring localization, translation, and global communication. Ignite your curiosity as we expand your horizons through these conversations. So let's dive in together into the Localization Fireside Chat. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Localization Fireside channel in uh, YouTube and uh, podcast. We exist on your, all your favorite channels for those who would like to watch or for those who would like to listen to our episodes and to our conversations. Uh, today uh, is uh, Friday, November 24th, 2023, and I'm uh, honored to be joined by uh, Bruno Herman. Bruno is in Brussels, and, and, and I look forward to our conversation today, Bruno, and it's been long coming. We've talked uh, quite often, you and I, over the past. We've met recently, but we've been talking on various occasions in a variety of settings together. And I can't wait to dive into our today's topic. It's as usual, our conversation is are pretty unscripted and off the cuff, natural, and that's what I like them to be. No pressure, <laughs> no yep. uh, no need no need for any PowerPoint discussions, tools, or anything like this. So today's conversation is pretty interesting for our audience, for those who don't know Bruno. Bruno, and I'll let him introduce himself in more details. I don't want to take steal his thunder, but in, a, in essence, the theme of the conversation today is where you have somebody, an individual who worked extensively as a buyer of localization, as a customer, and today, and, and on both sides, actually, and also on the supplier side. So he understands the buying part, and he also understands extensively the selling side, the selling part. And in today's world, we need those types of opinions from both sides of the equation. So Bruno, again, welcome to the channel. Welcome to today's episode. I really appreciate you having me, have, having you with us today. And if you don't mind for the audience introducing yourself, Bruno, in your own words. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me, Robin. It's a pleasure uh, to have this conversation on Friday afternoon for me. Perfect, perfect way to end the week. And as you said, I've been around in this industry for quite a long time now, 30 years, 30 years this year. And I've been working, I started actually on the on the supplier side as a linguist and as a project manager myself. And then after a few years, I moved to the client side or the buyer side of the industry, working for some big multinationals in the technology, market research and life science industries. And indeed, I'm probably a bit special <laughs> as a buyer because when I was working on the buyer side, what some people call the buyer side, I was actually juggling the buyer and the supplier sides. It means that I was officially in working in a company buying localization services, but at the same time, that company was also selling localization services. So my teams were doing both, which is which was very exciting, I have to say, and, and very unusual. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm the only one, probably not, but I know people usually are on one side or the other, but actually I was on both. So it made me have a good, I would say, overview of the industry. And also uh, it explains why today I'm a consultant working with some organizations, you know, small organizations, startups, but also some multinationals, because first of all, I understand both sides. And also I've been always trying the best I could to make those two sides work together. Because I know sometimes there is a feeling of a lack of alignment between 
the suppliers and the buyers. And so some suppliers are saying that, you know, they don't win business from their buyers because, you know, they didn't understand something. And on the buyer side, they said that they cannot, they cannot find the right supplier because those suppliers are not understanding their business issues. So I'm trying to really make those two work, understand each other and also work together. So that's why today I'm an executive advisor and strategic consultant. Executive because localization needs to be at the executive level and strategic because strategic, sorry, content operations is very, are very strategic. So yeah, I, I put those two words in my title. Absolutely. So uh, let me unpack, if you don't mind, uh, some of the items that you've mentioned in your introduction. A, you know, short questions. Are you independent? Do you work for somebody else? How does how does that work for you? So right now I'm independent. So I'm working, you know, as a consultant in different in different capacities. You know, there are engagements regarding audits. There are engagements regarding, you know, actually decision making services. So just to help people improve their operations or organizations or improve. So I'm working with organizations which are either global already or that are already globalizing themselves. And so it means that I'm working with executives, C-level usually, or just below the C-level, mm-hmm. to make sure that they understand the strategic nature of content operations and strate- specifically the strategic nature of localization. So, but I'm seen as an independent, so I'm, okay. I'm not tied okay. to any organization. And you work on the buyer side and the supplier side still, right? That is correct, Seth. Absolutely. Um, now, now, you mentioned something very interesting, which is I'm always, uh, I've not because you know, I always struggled with that is because when you say, you know, having executive discussions with the buyer side regarding localization or translation, however you want to call it, I always found, yes, there are willingness to understand, there are willingness to have a conversation, but the attention span for localization is short at that at that level. And depending depending on the size of the organization, I'm not saying that to be negative, not not mm-hmm. at all. Everybody's got their priorities. Everybody's got their list of things that they need to worry about. And I would assume, based on some conversation that I've had in the past, I mean, I, I, I can't wait to hear your feedback, is that localization sits somewhere toward the bottom of priorities. If you were a large pharmaceutical company, right? Or if you were a large industrial firm. Mm-hmm. I'm waiting to hear from you. So how do you take this from being at the lower side of things from a priority for an executive to elevate it to the top of uh, their food chain, if you will? That's a great question. And, and that's my daily bread, uh, as, as you just mentioned. I think, you know, <clears throat> this this sort of picture that you just described is coming from what I called in my introduction, a lack of alignment between suppliers and buyers. Indeed, if you are a buyer, if you are an LSP today, and if you want to sort of win some business with an organization, regardless of the size, can be a startup or a multinational, when you are going to present your offering, you are going to present your, you know, you are going to introduce your services, what you can do with your people, with your technology, etc., uh, and actually, my, many buyers, if not most buyers, actually will see that as, you know, as one of the other commodities that they have to buy. And obviously, some of these buyers uh, are, you know, procurement people or middle managers. And they see that as one of the pieces of their puzzle. And they don't elevate localized translation, localization to the strategic level because the strategic level 
is translation localization or has to see translation localization in a very different way, which is what I call, which is what I said before, strategic way, which is not just something to indeed transaction some files between a supplier and buyer. I sent you 10 files, you send me 10 files back in German, French, and Spanish, which is what I call the commodity or the, tr the very transactional way. The strategic way of considering translation localization is to insert them, is to embed, I use the word embed, embed them in the supply chain. That is a strategic asset in any company. Translation localization alone are not going to be strategic enough. If you embed translation localization in a content supply chain of any organization, because all organizations have at least one supply chain of content, right? Creation to delivery. There are a number of steps, including translation localization, but in addition to UX, in addition to testing, in addition to design. So you have a number of roles and responsibilities in this supply chain. But if you elevate translation localization from the commodity level to the strategic level that has to be the content supply chain, then of course the C-level gets the point that if you don't embed those two things called translation localization in their supply chain, the business is not going to happen. And obviously that is the, tr the strategic way of looking at it. But unfortunately, I have to say that in my career, I've not hear so many LSPs considering this strategic approach for translation organization, not just because they were not talking to the C-level, but because simply they were not using the language of the company. So do you connect the dots between the total spend for a large organization on uh, an item like translation versus buying real estate or buying any other types of ingredients for their business where by, you know, localization, as everybody knows, sits at the bottom of that spend list for any organization. Mm -hmm. is, is that connected in any way to what you just mentioned earlier from a strategic level elevation? Yes, exactly. It's in many cases, translation organization uh, are in a bucket with indeed real estate, or procurement services, or oh. you know, finance, financial services, leasing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, it is in this bucket, in this big bag, which mm -hmm. is always called procurement most of the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not always, but most of the time. And indeed, to just to take this out, just to take translation localization out of the bag, and elevate that those mm -hmm. those activities to the strategic level, it takes sometimes more than just the embedding in the content supply chain so that the C-level understands what translation localization is. But the next step, which is probably equally challenging, is to make the C-level understand that translation localization are creating value, are creating, are driving profits. Let's, let's, let's put it that way. Because obviously, you know, some people, even some C-level people, might still see translation localization as an important part of any content supply chain, but they don't see the value immediately. They don't make the connection between the international business and translation localization. So one of the one of the tips I usually give to people who have to do this sort of exercise to present or to introduce translation localization as value creating assets is to present to C-level, you know, to a bit defense or to a C-level meeting translation localization in three different ways. The right way of doing it, the bad way of doing it, and not doing it. That's right. <laughs> so, so that the C-level has a choice. 
they have a choice to make between including and considering translational localization in the right way, which is creating value, mm-hmm. or, cre- or, or considering translational localization in a bad way, which is at the level of commodity, mm-hmm. or not considering translational localization at all, because there are some C-level people who are mm-hmm. really questioning the need for that. Believe it or not, we are still it's still happening today. So by, by just putting the contrast between the three ways of considering translational localization, it usually unlocks a lot of conversation. So the question becomes now, if I was a CEO or if I was a C-level for one of those organizations, my immediate question would be is, you know, what is the impact on my business? And, and this is not an emotional answer and it's not an emotional question. It's a more of a logical question. What is the impact on my business? What's the outcome? A positive outcome that localization creates in my business. And I just want to ask you this question. I mean, it's an open-ended question and we both can theorize in terms of how we come up to an answer, but I'm like, I'm interested in your reaction to this. It's like, have we done a good enough job as an industry in articulating the business outcome from using translation services or localization services for those large organization. Example, company A, large organization, global organization, buying localization services will cause X, whatever that X is, into your financials. And now I'm a CEO of a company and I'm paying attention now because now it affects my business, affects my results, affects my share price, my stockholders are going to pay attention to this. And now it's part of the business equation versus, you know, emotionally speaking, you need to translate to sub-Saharan languages because your product is going there and these people need to understand what they're buying. That's what the localization industry, in my opinion, has been pegging that entire sales approach on. Demographic connections, interconnectivity between people don't speak the language that they need to consume products and services, which in theory they need to understand what they're, which is fine. But as a CEO now, the audience has changed. As a CEO, I need to understand it from numbers, positive impact on my business, and how does it solve my business problems? And I don't know if we've done enough job articulating that business side of it. I'm waiting for your feedback on this. I share your view. I think this industry hasn't done enough. It has done some things, sometimes some very good things, but not enough, never enough. And I would say it starts with something quite simple. I'm going to be a bit provocative here, Robin, and say, well, I invited, I don't know how many LSPs when I was on the buyer, when I had my buyer pad, and just to come to my company and, you know, tell me what, how we could do together, how we, how we could work together. And in 95% of cases, and I'm not exaggerating, it's really 95% of cases, those companies, those LSPs were coming and they were immediately starting by, during 20, 25 minutes, telling me what they were doing. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I can help you with it, I can help you with that. But they never asked me one simple question. How can I help you upfront, even upstream, even before coming to the meeting? That would have been the question that I would have expected. Say, Bruno, in light of our meeting, can you tell me what are your issues today? What what is yep. what is the reason why what is the value that we can create? Here? Absolutely. They were what is the problem? What is the problem and what what is it that I'm trying to solve yes. for you? And, and, exactly. and we lack that. Exactly. So that, that's a simple thing to actually walk in the shoes of a customer is to say, if I'm going to meet a customer or a potential customer for the first time, mm-hmm. I just need to understand what this customer is doing. A, a bit like a recruitment process. If you don't yep. go to an interview without knowing 
who you are mm -hmm. going to talk to, you are going to miss the interview, right? That's just impossible. So I would say that's the first issue. The second issue is that if some companies are successful in walking in the shoes of a customer, so let's assume that you know I'm having an LSP that has convinced the client that there is an opportunity, there is a business opportunity for the both of us, there is still another issue that is coming up later, which is, to your point, which is to demonstrate the value. And it's not always the demonstration of the value itself, because sometimes there is a customer, there is a, there is a buyer who is going to say, yes, I do need my product to be localized, otherwise my product is not going to be launched in that market and even more in regulated industries where it's mandatory. So there is no even no, no hesitation. It has to be done. There is no choice. But the question to, oh, sorry, the challenge to demonstrate the value is how to measure it, how to capture it. Because it's not just a matter of, yeah, if my product is not localized, it's not going to be launched in that market. It is, if it's localized, how can I make sure that it's still creating value? Because it's not because I, I'm launching a product in France or in Germany, in the right language that it's going to create value automatically. It's going to be on the marketplace, but there will be other products. Other, mm -hmm. other, my competitors will be on the same market. So how can I measure the value for me as a business, not just for me as a, as a producer or as a, as a creator of products, but, and then that, that, that's where it comes, you know, it's a mix of sales and marketing effectiveness numbers like sales, like you know engagements like you know number of calls to call centers etc and then the other part of the of, of the mix is what i call well it's not just me but what is called usually experiential metrics what is the actual customer experience is it good is it bad how is it different versus my competitors so you have a whole list of kpis and these kpis should not be discussed at the end they should be discussed in the beginning of the conversation because as soon as there is an agreement between a supplier and a buyer, the supplier should be proactive and say how we are going to measure our success and That's not right. wait until the work is done to start saying, oh, and by the way, now, how should we measure the success? <laughs> but there is, a, yeah, there is a disconnect between the buyer obligated to translate because it's you know, it's the law, it is by obligation, or which which takes a different approach on, on how you approach the whole thing. And the second thing is I'm translating or I'm localizing because of commercial reasons. Revenue increase, as you said, you know, customer sats, customer experience, all that stuff can be can be measured. And yeah. as we describe this this topic, I, I can't help to believe, I can't help to not notice that there is perhaps a room for, and you and I participated in a knowledge-based panel that we've discussed together on a different episode on this channel, where, for instance, the learning industry, after we've, after we put together a learning curriculum of our content or whatever you want to call it, there is level one, level two, level three, and level four measurements of the performance of that learning 
module that we've launched. And I'm so surprised till now, it's very rudimentary how we measure the localization output. We measure it by quality we, and the quality is measured by various ways. You know, is the customer satisfied with it? The user satisfied with it? Yeah, that's that's good enough for the localization firm in, in, in a lot of cases, right? But how did we achieve the outcome? And there's a lot of people talking now about I'd like to get your take on that one, on content performance measurement. Mm-hmm. So after I translated, after I localized something, mm-hmm. there is ways now to measure the performance of this content. Did it achieve what it's supposed to achieve? Now, I'm not talking about all content. You know, if you're just translating a user manual to put on a shelf somewhere because the law has, you know, obligated you to do that, that's different than you know, marketing material, did I generate enough leads off of my website? Did I resolve enough customer issues using the localization tools, etc.? What's your thoughts on that custom, uh, content performance, if you will? Ah, that's a very, another very, very good question. First of all, I stopped years ago, I stopped using the word quality. And I even stopped using the word perform. It sounds provocative, but the reason is because I found a much better word to describe and to define what should be measured. This is called effectiveness. I call it content effectiveness measurement. Why effectiveness? Because for me, and it's not just for me, I think if you ask people, you know, you translate content, you localize a product, it means that this content, this product has a job to do, which is to be sold. Simple that's as right. that, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's the job of the content. It's not, as you said, you don't translate well. In some cases you do, but Usually, you don't translate a, a user guide to be put on a shelf and not to be used by anyone. Mm-hmm. Usually, when you localize content, when you localize product, when you localize services, it is because it's going to be a sale. Well, mm-hmm. multiple sales, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So, I think that effectiveness is because and translation have a job to do. And the job is to indeed create, well, first of all, is to make an impression, is to make you know, an impact and it's to make an imprint. That's the marketing concept of, you know, the sales journey is first Mm -hmm. to reach out and then to convince, to resonate, and finally to create a reaction. And I think that's the job of the content that is localized. So based on this sort of sales journey or sales, it's easier to start looking at the steps, as I said, between, you know, impression, impact and imprint and say, okay, what are the KPIs at each stage? What should we do? Because to your point, you don't translate a user guide for the same reason as you localize a product. You translate a sales guide because you hope that, obviously, it's going to be used with a product and by the users of that product, but you localize a product because that's going to generate the sale. That's going to generate the actual reaction of the sale. So mm-hmm. there might be different between translating a KPI, translating a manual, and, trans- and localizing a product, because the, the objective is going to be quite different in the curve or in the in the cycle. So I would say that what is lacking for me sometimes, and, and that's where I'm, you know, I'm I'm happy to help clients with that now, is to define in their in their supply chain, in their customer journey, where the KPIs for translation localization will make the most impact. Because indeed, it it cannot just be, you know, the number of sales. Number of sales is great, but of course, you know, in many markets, there is a lot of competition. So why yeah. should my why should my my product, which is localized, why should it be better? Why should it be more impactful than the, the my competitors? And and 
you know, the difference between, you made a very good point about, you know, the, the sort of mindset between organizations having to translate, like regulated industries, like life science, yep. finance, legal, and the other industries that are not forced, but they are forced by their clients, actually, because, mm-hmm. you know, I always remember that sentence that I heard in my business school, which is that, you know, people, some people need low prices, but some people prefer low prices. And it means that even if you are rich, you would prefer low prices because you keep some money in your pocket. So I would say that even if you don't need to translate, if you don't need to localize, there will still be a, a competitive advantage because people will prefer your your product that is in German in Germany rather than to the product. I mean, instead of the product of your competitor, that is going yep. to be in bad German or in no German. And that's yep. the difference. That's the contrast between, as I said, the contrast between right, wrong, and no localization. Absolutely, and you know, one of the things that you know in in a in a diverse industry as we are. And what I mean by diverse is we cover many topics of localization and every topic under the sun, basically. And at the same time, you know, when we're talking about measurement, you're talking about something specific. When, you know, anything that has to do with measurement, it's, it has to be specific. It has to be scientific. It has to lead to some better outcome of improving the process improving. So I'm, I'm feeling here that there is an idea that you and I just came up with today on this episode of an ISO standard, perhaps down the road to, to detail or to work around how do we measure outcome and because we have a lot of quality standards on, you know, the number of errors per thousand, et cetera. So the error, and you mentioned the quality issues, the quality in terms of, we're going to stop talking about quality and figuring out, did the content achieve what it's supposed to achieve? And, and that's a shift. That's a major yeah. shift. And you and I would be like, if somebody from our ISO standard listens, <laughs> listens to this conversation today, they probably put us on a, you know, big, <laughs> big list here. But we apologize yeah. ahead of time if we're really thinking outside the box a little bit here by saying maybe the, maybe the, the measurement needs to be around what is the content doing after it has been translated? Is it improving things or not improving things? And I'm sure there's a many ways to measure that. Absolutely. And, 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 and effectiveness should be yeah. really, I mean, deserves for me an ISO standard. It's been in my dreams or my hopes for, for quite some time that, you know, in terms of certification, and that's the case in other industries, Robin, that's the, that's the, that's the trick here. You know, there are other industries where you have other ISO standards which are effectiveness oriented, but not in the localization industry. Very strange, very strange. And if we go back to, you know, I mean, I've, similar to you, I've been around for many years. I just celebrated my 20th year in the anniversary, anniversary in the industry. And, you know, every conversation I've had is around, around quality has been centered around, mm-hmm. you know, is this word accurate or not accurate? I prefer different words. The translation generally is correct, but people have different ways of reading certain things and deeming that it's good for them or not good for them. So it's, Equality has always been, in my opinion, an elusive thing yeah. to most part. I mean, I'm sure there are some people going to be disagreeing with me and say, no, equality could be more centered and could be more uh, concrete when it comes to certain things. I get that. But there are people you put, you know, I've been given this example a long time ago. 
you take a paragraph, you give it to five people in the same room, you tell them to read it, and the five people will have it, five different opinions on the same text. So there is room for, you know, challenging things. However, if we measure things from an outcome perspective, now it's solid. Now it's math. Now it's mm-hmm. did it achieve what it's supposed to achieve, regardless of how did we get there? Yeah, exactly. And 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 to 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 be really honest, I I well the reason why I stopped using quality as a word itself is because you can ask quality in a room with ten people, you can you will have at least eight different opinions, and these opinions will be subjective. That's the nature. That's the human nature, right? Right. You ask people what they like, what they don't like. They will not express why they like it or why they mm-hmm. don't like it. They will just say, yes, I like, or no, I like, but I don't. So I think that effectiveness is pushing people to say, if you tell me this is right or this is wrong, you have to tell me why. You have to tell me what is really underlying your opinion or your perspective on my content, on my product, and not just say, yeah, because otherwise I'm going to be lost for that matter. I'm going to be lost and I'm not going to know what to do. That's right. That's right. That's right. Now, switching gear a little bit, just for the sake of time, there's many topics I would like to cover with you today, Bruno. One of, one of the things I, I think on the, you and I have had a conversation and we've talked a little bit about and resourcing things in the new environment that we're in right now. As you can, as you and I have talked before, there is a mega shift happening not just in our industry, but in a variety of industries when it comes to artificial intelligence and the impact of the artificial intelligence on many industries, including localization. We're not being singled out for the audience. Localization is not the only industry being affected by artificial intelligence. All industries are being affected by artificial intelligence. Now, for our industry, you know, and the question to you, Bruno, is how do we coexist as human resources, talents, skills, businesses, in the new technologies and how the new technology is being implemented and adopted into our industry. And you and I have talked about this before, and there's various ways of dealing with this. I'm interested in your opinion for our audience. How do we deal with this? Yes, oh, that's, that's a huge topic. And, and usually what, what I do when I have to explain my perspective on that, which is not just mine, by the way, but which is one of the perspectives on this, is, is to start with the big picture. And, and you, you set the stage in the beginning of this call, right? You said that AI is changing many things and, and probably will change many, everything at some point. But today it's already changing many. Things. And what AI is, is really changing in our industry is, of course, that it is, it is creating a lot of changes because AI works different way than human beings. And I would say that it has the first, the first ripple effect of this difference is on operations on operations, because AI doesn't work like we've been working in this industry for decades with the transaction of files. You can you can have one million great files. You are not going to have any AI just by trying to push those files or to feed those files to AI. It's not going to work. AI works with data. You aren't going to say, yes, but Bruno, data is not new, right? Data has been around in our industry for a while. Yeah, but not for the same reason as AI. Data has been used and you know, when I was working at Nielsen, I was already managing 15 years ago, I was already managing language data. But it was not for AI, it was for BI. It was actually for business, business intelligence. intelligence yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, all the, the millions of data labels that Nielsen had 
were, had to be translated and localized. And at that time, I was saying to my friends in the industry, you know what, I'm, my team is managing language data. They were asking me, language data, what is this? So they were looking at me as a, as a bit of E.T., you know, the movie. And then they said, oh, interesting, but Bruno is really living in the future. And I said, one day you will see that language data is going to be used for something else than B.I. And today, just one letter has been changed. Instead of B, you have the A coming up. AI, AI needs language data, but for another reason, which is even more vital, that you, you, don't, you don't have any AI without data. And language data is, is key to, to, to feed and to train AI. Having said that, you would say, yeah, but today in our industry, we are still working a lot with files, Word, PDF, and, you know, there is nothing wrong about that. But the one thing that is wrong is that it's not going to help to feed any AI. So you need to convert a number of files into language data. I'm not going to enter into that because that would take one hour to explain and to, to say where I see some challenges, but a lot of opportunities for the industry. So uh, I know people, some people know I, I love this topic because I think this industry has a huge opportunity in terms of conversion uh, of files into data, but that's, I, I put that aside now. But it's changing operations because you cannot just keep if you are a supplier or even if, if you are a buyer, you cannot just keep working on your multilingual content by transactioning files. You cannot say to your, if you are a buyer, you cannot say to your supplier, I'm going to send you 10 PDF. Can you send them back to me in five languages? And then the supplier will get the files and the supplier will say the project manager, the project manager is going to set, to send those files to the linguist, to the, to the DTP specialist, et cetera. So everything is based on transactional files when you look at the workflows. That is changing because AI pushes for changing that. And instead of instead of working with file transactions, you now, as, as a buyer or as a supplier, you have to work with data flows. Replace files, transaction, file transactions with data flows, which means that, of course, as I said, first of all, you need to have this data. You need to get this data, extract this data from files, but that's not enough. You need to make sure that this data is going to be relevant and usable for AI. So there are yeah. a number of tasks, new tasks, yeah. new roles, yeah. responsibilities that can be really in the hands of the language industry, like data curation, data structure, data management. Mm -hmm. and, and there is an opportunity, I would say, even to go beyond the industry, to work with another industry, which is critical in AI, which is data yeah. science. I see a lot of opportunities between, oh, sorry, I see a lot of opportunities in the collaboration between data scientists and language, and linguists, sorry. Because mm -hmm. I think data scientists have a lot of experience and expertise in data management, and linguists have a lot of expertise in language management. If you put those together, that's the winning combination for making AI truly multilingual today. So that is changing operations. And then, as I said, the, the last ripple effect of the big picture that I described in the beginning is that you have a change in roles and responsibilities, which means that there are some new resources needed. So there will be for some time, maybe for another another couple of years, there will be a need for post editors and translators, but then there will be a growing need for data taggers, data annotators, data curators. And these can be very nice roles, value-adding mm -hmm. roles for linguists. Some of them will want to get there. Some of them will not want to get there just because yeah. for editing. You know, some people wanted to become post editors. 
some people didn't want to become facilitators. So there will be a choice to make. But as a leader in the organization, in operations, for instance, the, the challenge will be to have the right people with the right tasks. And that will mean, of course, to recycle some people, but also to have to recruit some new people. So that is that's yeah. the ripple effect, starting with AI, the first ripple effect on operations, and as a result, the second ripple effect on, on resources. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you bring up a very good point in terms of how we as an industry, you know, uh, absorb this technology and work with this technology and how it evolves on an individual basis, on a business level basis, on our customers levels, etc. So there are still, you know, I, I, as we cross the bridge of, of ingesting this technology into our world, there are so many obstacles that we still need to solve. It hasn't been solved yet. And, you know, one of them comes to mind is the, uh, is the idea of integrating all these repositories of data and, and making sense of all these streams of data to unified way that a localization firm can make, make sense of it all. As you know, there's maybe 13,000 content management systems out there. Each one of them has its own protocol. Each one of them has its own set of, you know, criteria of how you parse data to it, etc. So data topic is pretty interesting. And I love talking about data. Part of my world back in the days, I was working with data in one of my career. I was a DBA for another company. So it's very interesting, you know, passionate topic to be talking about but having all said all this to make sense of all this all this data and all this technology and all the, the roles changing etc do you feel like i mean i feel it in my mind there is a our psyche as an industry we are we are torn between two i want to say polar opposites one is one one large population of our industry still want to you know avoid what they call the nightmare of technology coming in and the other you know more of avant-garde if you will portion or part of our industry from a from a population perspective are embracing it are you know running toward it i they want to bring it in and they want to you know, work with it, play with it and see what it does and what can we do with it. So who wins at the end? I mean, I was I was reminded at the end of, you know, there was a conference not too long ago. I won't name any names here where there was, it was attended by a large population of translators. And the speaker mentioned something about, yeah, don't worry, AI is not going to do anything and you guys are going to be doing very well. Don't worry. And, the you know, the applause in the in the, in the audience was so was so big, but I don't know if they're delaying the inevitable. And do you agree with my analogy on the two psyche of the industry going on? I do. <laughs> I, I really do. I absolutely do. I think that you're absolutely right that there is right now, because we are, I mean, we are in the beginning of the journey with AI, right? It's mm-hmm. We see every day that AI is not perfect yet. And, you know, there are some new versions of ChatGPT and, well, the, the, uh, the AI world is really public. For the moment it's really you know there, there are some there are some things really moving fast there are some things moving slowly uh, and of course there is a difference between the part of the world where you are you know if it's in Europe everything's about regulation if it's the US everything's everybody thinks about business so anyway so the the AI world being so diverse we are just in the beginning of the journey so we are still in what the the, the sort of the gurus would call the transformation period and then after the transformation period will come the adoption period. And I would say that indeed there are really two groups of people now, two groups of 
I would say, uh, audiences. And I think the first group, as you said, you know, who is, who is scared, who is skeptical about this technology change gamer is just looking at the challenges or the, 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 you know, the issues. And the second group that is embracing th this technology game changer is looking at the opportunity. So it's like in life in general, you know, there are people who are seeing an opportunity in every, in every issue. Uh, or there are some people <laughs> seeing, you know, uh, an issue in every opportunity. So there will be two groups of people during some time because we are in this transformation period. And, you know, when I was presenting at Lockworld recently, I had a slide on what I consider today as the model of operations for the next, let's say, six months. I, I don't go further than that because you never know what can happen after six months. But it was in one on my slide, I, I wanted to show that Today, we have, a, we have an operational model, which is, as I said, based on file transactions. So the usual technology, you know, TMS, mm -hmm. CAP tool, and, mm -hmm. and file transactions. Yep. But at the, same, at the same time, on my slide, I was, I was saying that it was not, you know, this one or the other one. It was this one and the other one. Because the other one being, you know, the, the AI workflow, mm -hmm. the AI-powered workflow, where everything that is related to content operations is no longer based on files, is no longer based on, just, it's based mm -hmm. on data services, it's based on content services, which you don't need when you work in the previous model. And these two models are going to live together for a while in, in I would say, certainly in large organizations because large organizations are big machines and you don't you don't change things very easily in, in multinationals. I, I know what I'm talking about here. And, and and so maybe for a startup, the choice will be easier because a startup can adopt immediately, can adopt yep. the AI-powered operational model. But of, yeah, this this during this transition, there will be two models living side by side, I would say. But at some point, just like you said, there will be a choice to make. And, you know, uh, and it's for me, it's impossible to tell you when, but I know that at some point, one model will prevail. My guess is, of course, that the AI-powered AI model will prevail because there are so many opportunities. There are so many benefits of using the AI-powered model for operations mm -hmm. than decision makers. So the people who are signing the contracts, who are, who are spending the money, they will go for that model because they will see all the benefits in terms of technology and they will see all the benefits in terms of people management. So that will drive their decision, and that sure. will also drive the 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 the, 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 the I would say the um, the prevailing model, the agenda. Uh, yeah. So I, I just for you know, I mean, this is what my next point is probably that will take us to another full one hour episode together. But I'm going to throw it out there anyway for suppliers in our industry. I guess the struggle right now in in the in that whole 100,000 foot level kind of thinking toward where we sit in technology is balancing revenue generation. So I am going to adopt technology that's kind of cut into my revenue and mm -hmm. and I have no choice because sometimes my customers are asking me for it, right? So this is this is the general thinking where people are or should I continue pushing that back for the sake of retaining some of my old revenue. Now, I know the I know the the you know the wisdom says technology is coming regardless of what you, what we say we are doing or not doing. You know, we're not being the one who is gatekeeping it anymore. The genie's out of the bottle. Customers know about it. Everybody knows about it. It's available to people for free. We either get on board or don't get on board, 
right? So that's the, that's the question. And the, and the wisdom would say, if you're ahead of the game, if you're, you are the one as a supplier, educating, helping, supporting, and promoting, then you're not the one who's going to be following this and you won't be viewed as you're just getting catching, catching up now. So what's Mm -hmm. your view on balancing revenue between, you know, we're not the only one, by the way, for the audience, we're not the only industry that struggled with this. The printing industry went through this, telecom went through this, everybody went through this. So hanging on to revenue versus creating new revenue streams. Yeah, that, that is definitely a, a very, very sensitive, you know, part of the decision-making process. And and I would say that it depends. It really depends on if you're a supplier, if you are an LSP, it depends on the type of customer that you might have. Because, again, I would say that in many life science companies today, life science being a fairly conservative industry, you can still actually say that, you know, you don't have to sort of be super, super driven by technology because, you know, you just need to make sure that you can use the technology that you have to secure a revenue because your client is not going to be very demanding. Your client is going to keep asking for PDF, translated PDF for the next year. For instance, I'm, 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 I'm exaggerating, but it's just to make my point that some clients are not going to push for, you know, is, I mean, some, some clients are not going to, to create challenges in terms of choice between technology and revenue. Mm-hmm. However, there are some other types of clients that are going to be pushing, shaking, I should say, suppliers because they will indeed, they will pose a challenge to the suppliers and say, either you keep working with me, so we keep our business going, which means that your revenues are secured, if you are able to fit in my tech ecosystem. And if you are not able, then me, the buyer, the client, I have a problem if you say that you cannot fit in my ecosystem because my technology is going to be more advanced than yours, then, you know, your business is at, is at risk. So your That's revenue. Right. And I think that I have a client now, which I'm not going to name, but it's a fairly big organization. And they ask their suppliers, their language services suppliers, to, you know, as part of their RFPs, very interesting, not just to talk about quality and, you know, the processes or everything that you, you find, of course, in RFPs, but now they include they include in their RFPs the capabilities and the capacity for their suppliers to fit in their ecosystem because that client, that, that organization, well, the client of mine, but that organization has a very, I would say, not very, fairly sophisticated ecosystem. So it's not mm-hmm. just a pile of different tools and systems. It is well organized in an ecosystem and this ecosystem is really driving the whole content operations of this organization. So mm-hmm. it means that they want suppliers or they want partners, better than suppliers, they want partners that can really be in this ecosystem and yep. not just deliver files with an FTP or deliver files with a TMS. They want to actually access this ecosystem and work in this ecosystem. And, and you know what? We bring a very, you bring a very, very good point, Bruno. I'm sorry, we're running out of time here, but you, yeah. you, you really bring a very good point because, you know, what you just described being part of that ecosystem for the customer is 
what is the biggest hopes and desires for every uh, business person to be in that position to connect with customers. Because the last thing you want to be, and that's the fault of them since 30 years ago when this industry got really starting to flourish, is we started as a professional organization like any other professional industry. And then we started commoditizing ourselves to a transactional models, right? Exactly. And now back to the eco- being part of that ecosystem. And if you are part of that ecosystem as a supplier, that means you are now a sticky solution inside of a customer organization versus, yeah, you're just a transactional model now. I need you today, but I don't need you tomorrow. If you're part of that ecosystem, you're creating a great evolution from a business perspective because you want to become an extension to that company. You want to be an, exactly. become an extension to that department. You want to be a reliable partner, all that good stuff, right? No, exactly. And, and that's that's where the challenge is for a number of suppliers, I would say. Now that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm advising and I'm consulting with some buyers that, you know, of course, they should put that in their RFPs to just to be able to understand the capacity and the capabilities to fit in the right ecosystem. But of course, you know, it, it poses a quite, it poses a challenge to mid-size or smaller LSPs or, you know, translation agencies that are still relying on their good old TMS or the good old FTP system to trans to deliver files, which is really scary for some clients. They say, Ooh, whoa, 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 if, 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 if one of my suppliers is like that, you know, well, uh, he, he's not, first of all, it's not going to be, to your point, it's not going to be embedded in the ecosystem. But even worse than that, because my supplier will not fit in my ecosystem, it will, it will create some cost on my side, me. So it's even, it's even worse. Absolutely. Hey, Bruno, look, I just want to summarize to our audience here a couple of points here because you, we brought up some gems in our conversation today, and I hope people took notes of that. And just in summary, if you're a supplier talking to a customer, please make sure you're solving a business problem. If you are uh, a supplier also hoping to do business with a customer of, of any of your customer base, let's hope that you are aiming to become part of their ecosystem and if you are also a supplier wants to do with a business with a customer make sure that you're up to speed on all the tech and how does that fit in the customer's platform and the customer's models and if you are a customer wants to do business with a supplier look for those suppliers who are solving your problem it's vice versa so i really appreciate your time today with me uh, bruno i i personally you know i have a pleasure talking to you on on these topics and i look forward to having more conversations together and I hope the audience got a lot of gems out of this conversation because I did. And I think we've covered a lot of important topics. And each one of those topics, really, you could dedicate another hour to go through them one by one by one, especially on the datafication point that you just brought up today. Yeah. You know, data, data, you know, and the idea of static data versus live data. You know, you, you brought up the Nielsen example. That's pretty mm-hmm. interesting when your days in at Nielsen where you have business intelligence data and how to use actual actionable data in an artificial intelligence way. Those are very, very important points to drill down deeper into them. So last words for you. And I really want to thank you, but last words for you. Thank you very much, Robin. And thanks again for this opportunity for me to express some of these views and and share with you and some of these points. I hope I didn't shock anybody, but (laughs) I I just wanted to be constructive, most of all. And you're right. I think... think there are a number of very hot topics that the industry, uh, or even larger, the community, localization community, should be 
considering very seriously. And, and of course, fear is part of human nature, skepticism as well. But I think that uh, we have to force ourselves, and not just us in this industry, but in any industry, to embrace change, because change is not going to wait for us. So thanks again. No. No, no. Thank you, uh, Bruno, for joining me this morning and thanks in this afternoon in Brussels. Thank you very much for coming online and spending the time with us. I really appreciate it. For our audience, thank you so much for listening into another episode. I really appreciate it. If you are not a, a subscriber yet, I highly encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube and podcast channels and look us up on LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your comments, your thoughts. And I really appreciate the audience time to listen in on this conversation. And thanks so much and enjoy the weekend. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Localization Fireside Chat. Take the warmth of knowledge and renewed cultural passion with you. Keep exploring. Stay curious. And until next time, this is Robin Ayoub. Keep those global conversations alive.